Good morning. Good morning. So if you're one of the children, we have a classes for you. You can head back to the back. We're going to be continuing our series in John chapter 4. As I said, uh, Pastor Stephen is visiting uh, uh, a couple of churches in Canada. Um, An old friend of Lisa's, he's preaching at um, his church as well as uh, Calvary Chapel. uh, They share a building together. And so uh, Stephen is up there ministering uh, this weekend. Uh, For us, we're going to be in John chapter 4. It's a little bit longer of a text, but it's a very good one. If you need a Bible, uh, there are ushers in the back. If you raise your hand, I'd love to bring you a Bible if you need a Bible. John chapter 4. <clears throat> well, a couple of, well, actually, not a couple of years, a few years ago, um, my family and I were traveling to Oklahoma. Hey, dude. And uh, we, we were on the plane, we were waiting on the tarmac there, and all of a sudden we heard some rumors from the front that, um, somebody um, special, somebody uh, important was on the plane. And we were kind of, what, who is it? You know, trying to figure it out and listening and so on. And then walking down the aisle was uh, former President Jimmy Carter and his uh, security group. And they were coming in, he was coming row by row and just saying hello to the people in the seats. Um, it, it was an honor to have a, a former president come and say hi and have a greeting and uh, he didn't need to do so. <laughs> you know, we couldn't vote for him anymore. He was already done. But he came and he, he said hi, and it was, it was, it was a kind gesture. Uh, today, we are going to be looking at um, a, a surprise visit. And this surprise visit is, is continued in, in, in John, and Jesus has been revealing himself more and more about who he is. Well, this surprise visit is um, a little bit shocking, and it's a little bit uncomfortable, the surprise visit. Uh, with President Carter's visit, it was very comfortable. Um, we, you know, just enjoyed a few brief verbs, but it was nice. Here, Jesus is going to visit a woman, and he's not just bringing greetings. He brings up some dark secrets in her life. And, and he breaks social and personal norms, standards in the society, um, and, and to further God's mission in a way that's rather uncomfortable. It, it would have been like this last week, um, Heather and I received a note in the mail. It's from the IRS, and it said, you owe $11,000. Um, we are praying that they rectify this, and it's a mistake. But if President Carter would have said, hey, nice to meet you, I thought you cheated on your taxes about you know five years ago, that would have been a totally different situation. Um, this is the kind of situation in a, a surprise visit. It's awkward. It's worrisome for this woman who meets Jesus. <clears throat> so we're in John chapter 4. And we're seeing these boundaries being pushed. Here's the main point for this morning. You'll see it up on the screen. God uncomfortably includes unlikely worshipers who give witness. God uncomfortably includes unlikely worshipers who give witness. We'll look at it in four parts, kind of broken down. The first part will be uncomfortably inclusive. Then we're going to look at uncomfortably personal then an unlikely worshiper, and lastly, the worshiper's witness. We'll follow along through the big idea as we go through. All right, so we'll begin reading. You can look at chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 to kind of get the setting of what's happening. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. 
Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. We'll stop there. So I think we're, we've been following along in John. Uh, Jesus has been down in the southern part of Israel in Jerusalem for the Passover. And now um, there's been some hubbub. His ministry's taking off. And the Pharisees are beginning to hear about Jesus and how his ministry is, 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 you know, lots of people are coming. There's baptisms taking place. And so Jesus, in trying to avoid the controversy of the situation, he decides he's going to head back up north, back home to Galilee. All right? So ge- geographically, I think most of you know this, but in the south is Judea, where Jerusalem is, and up north is Galilee. But in order to get there, you have to go through a region called Samaria. In Samaria, this was a place where um, many years ago, when the um, Israelites, the northern tribe of Israel was unfaithful, the Assyrians came in and conquered the Israelites. They, they, many went to death, many were exiled, but some of the poor and weak and uh, unpowerful were left in that region, and they intermingled with the Assyrians, and those people became the Samaritans. So you have this population in the middle that is considered a polluted a people that the Jews in general did not associate with. They were considered morally and religiously, ethnically, you know, other. They were half-bloods, you might say. So I'll have to say, Jesus, in order to get to Galilee, he travels north through Samaria to get there. Now, there's a way you could go around the way, but that was the most direct way. And so he travels through this land where people would consider polluted. And as he walks, he becomes tired. Jesus is a man. Same way as us. He gets tired at times. The midday sun burned down on him. And so he sits down at this well to refresh himself, the ancient well of the patriarch Jacob. All right. So it was this hour that this historic conversation begins. Let's continue to read on. Verse 7. We'll read the conversation. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John kind of tells us a little commentary, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, meaning the water from the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty to have to come to here to draw water anymore. We'll stop there. My, my wife and daughters, um, well, last week, as you know, Pastor Stephen and I had COVID, so we weren't here. We were stuck at home. My wife and daughters, though, they got to go to Portland. And then it was a soccer tournament, which I was supposed to be at, but I didn't get to go to. Um, I'm bitter, sorry. Um, this was a, it was an interesting location. There was a complex there. And, but it was surrounded, as Portland may often is, with homeless encampments all around it. And so my wife said it was very odd, an odd experience that you had all these, like, you know, soccer moms and soccer dads and kids all there at the same time as all these, um, homeless, um, mostly men, I guess. 
And they were like two different worlds that were right with each other but did not interact. They were separate. They were apart from each other. This conversation with Jesus begins with this Samaritan woman. It's historic because you have Jesus going to this, this foreigner. A place that where Jews and Gentiles, or Jews and Samaritans, lived in a similar area, but they lived as in separate um, places, in separate existences. They they weren't together. And this is the launch of God's plan. We're going to see at this time this historic conversation to go to all people. The 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 plan of redemptive history, God saving people, has, is is making a, a big turn. An important chapter in the Bible is here in John chapter four. So you have these two people existing in close proximity, but not interacting. So when Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman in verse 9, she says, how can you ask me for a drink? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Don't you know that uh, you're breaking sort of the boundaries we're not supposed to cross? Don't you get it? So in addition, I think many of you probably know or you haven't, that it was taboo for a Jewish rabbi to speak to a woman. And so we'll later read in verse 27, the disciples hear this and they're wondering, why are you talking to her? How can you break these social boundaries? These crossing borders that were uncomfortable. But we shall see. Jesus is breaking these social borders, these personal borders, for to cause discomfort for good. In verse 10, the tension and discomfort rises even more. Because Jesus speaks in sort of a riddle. Uh, we have these dad jokes that sit on our counter at home, and they always speak in riddles. Uh, Seth and I like them the best, I think. Um, and, and this riddle is, is kind of, he says, um, he talks about living water. Now, living water has a sort of a double meaning. Living water can mean flowing water, fresh water, rushing water. But it also has biblical connotations in the sense of Jeremiah 2, Zechariah 14, specifically, but other places as well, speak of this a living water that God provides. He gives springs of living water, we see, water from God. So it could be running water or spiritual water. So this, this, this interaction, it's remarkable. Can you imagine this woman, um, this, this random guy coming up, a foreigner, Jew, and then speaking about living water, he, you know, She's maybe like, is this a pickup line? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Is he going to rob me? Like, what is going on here? So the woman, in order to get out of this conversation, she uses some sarcasm and mockery to try to make him go away. But Jesus is not deferred. He's not deterred. And so he clarifies that this water that he's offering, offering is not of earthly kind. It, 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 this, is, this is water like the fountain of youth. This water, when you drink from it, has the properties of eternal life. And so in verse 15, you can see the woman, this, he's like, maybe this guy's crazy. She, said, she sort of just tries to cut this conversation off. And so the way she does it, she's, I'm going to call his bluff. She says, give me this water so that I can drink. But Jesus knows that this is history being made here. Do you remember just, um, I think it was two weeks ago, we had um, we studied the the chapter uh, John chapter three about Nicodemus, and so you have Nicodemus who's a Pharisee in chapter three, and then just a short while later, um, John now writing the same book. He's now writing a similar story about a Samaritan woman. Think of the contrast between these two: one a man, one a woman. One is a, a pure Jew. One is a, a polluted Samaritan. One is an elite of society, everybody we respect and honor. 
One's a nobody. One has an honorable name, Nicodemus. In this story, we don't even know this woman's name. What is she called? She's just the Samaritan woman. One's educated, one's streetwise. But Jesus is going to these two different people, one after another. John writes about it in order to tell us something. And he speaks of the similar topic to both of them. He, takes, he speaks about a need they both have, the need of eternal life. And he speaks about it in terms of water, symbolized by the Spirit. And both Nicodemus and the woman have a similarity in that they're both skeptical of the situation, even though their differences are so stark. And Jesus is doing this for a purpose. He's telling us that all people, no matter what culture, men or women, all people have a need, and that is eternal life that is found in Jesus. Everyone is dead apart for Jesus, and they need this life. And this life is symbolized here by the water of the Spirit. It's a universal need. This is a historic conversation because Jesus is broadening the borders by which the gospel, the good news, is going forth. But... This woman's discomfort, it doesn't end here. In verse 16, this conversation uh, goes even farther. Her her level of comfort kind of goes off the chart. At first, she was uncomfortable because he was breaking these these social boundaries. Now he's going to be breaking a boundary that's personal. Going to go from uncomfortably personal next. All right, so let's read in verses 16 through 19. See if I can find it here in my Bible. 16, and Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one now, the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Jesus He is inclusive. He is without partiality. He goes to the outsider. He goes to the sinner. This is one of those things that uh, we can just brag about as a people. Like, we have a Savior who goes to the outsider. He is not uh, put off by any... he, He goes to save. But when Jesus goes, he invades your space. He goes right in. This conversation changes when Jesus, he goes really personal here. He asks about her husband. And you can tell by the brevity of her response, she just wants this conversation to end and like him to change the topic. She says, I have no husband. Well, Jesus knows that's true. And, and, and he actually, in such a kind way, he says, you know, you're right. Wow, you know, thank, you know thanks for sharing that. But you've had, you know, five husbands. Jesus is going personal. He, he is getting into this woman's business for a reason, for a purpose. He, he is breaking the, the social boundaries, but he's also breaking, breaking these personal boundaries. And he's doing it because he cares for her. Jesus is good to invade our boundaries. And he's also good because he does it in a gentle way. But he is not afraid to cause discomfort in our lives to change, to unveil those dark spots, dark spots in our lives. I, I, um, if you think about Jesus, you read through the Gospels, when he interacts with people, um, he will pick out that thing in their lives that is really just 
grabbing onto their heart. It, it, could, be, it could be money. It could be a power issue. It could be greed. Just, just think of the stories of Jesus. He's good at zeroing in on those things. And why? Because he's trying to un, 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 um, unveil, to show forth what things are controlling our worship or are hindering our worship. I think I've told you this before. I have a tendency to be consumed by, by sports. I, I like sports. They, they, they just, I, just, I don't know why. I just love, I love them. And so the Lord has been faithful over the years, though, to show me the futility of sports. They don't ultimately fulfill. I've lost enough games or been dis- disappointed in enough things that I realize this doesn't do it. Like, if you do win, then you're, you're done the next game when you lose. They're passing. Jesus has been good to reveal those things. And he does that for us. He reaches in and he shows us these things are attached to your heart in a way that's not right. And he shows forth them. And why? Because he wants to bring change. He brings discomfort in order to bring change. Jesus is concerned about the individual. He is concerned. But we also see, though, he cares about the society. Society's... um, we personally have a society, our, our, our world, our culture has a society in which we value um, inclusion, don't we? We think that it is very good to include all peoples of you know, different sex, different gender, different ethnicity, different wealth. We go on about our culture's values of this. But we, our society also, and this is not in a good way, believe that we shouldn't get involved in each other's business. One person can have a, one moral value and one person can have a different moral value and just leave each other alone. It's okay. There's, there's just live your personal lives as you desire. Our study values inclusion. We, dis, we, we do not value uh, moral goodness in a lot of ways. There are other studies of the opposite where they will exclude, but they value high moral standards. Did you realize that Jesus is uncomfortable for both of those societies. He reaches in and he touches the moral impurities in people's lives and he calls them out, as well as he includes in a way that's uncomfortable for others. Jesus challenges both. This is one of the amazing things about Jesus. And he does so because he wants to change and mold us. That's what he does. Jesus can embrace the person while challenging a person's ethics and behavior. Jesus cares about the personal life, the moral choices, in a way that he gets up all in our business. <laughs> he gets up in the society, he gets up in a, a society's business, he challenges. And in many ways, that's why they killed him. It was too much. Jesus wanted a challenge for good. But his death was also for good. We can also look at this from, from another angle. And Jesus sets an example for his people. The way that Jesus looks at people, including and also calling out, it's an example to us. We should be those who are, can, be, can get uncomfortable including people beyond what we're ready for. We also should be uncomfortable in being willing to reach into someone's life and help them by calling out particular things that need, they need help in, to helping them identify those areas that um, are really attached to their hearts. This is one of the ways in which we follow Jesus. This is one of the ways that we are disciples of Jesus, by walking in the same way he does, including and invading in a way that's caring for the person's good. And those who do that, though, will be uncomfortable. There will be questions that are hard. If, if you um, 
if your neighbor is, uses language or has certain behaviors that you're uncomfortable with and you're in, you, you, you invade into their lives, it could be uncomfortable at times trying to figure out how to navigate those things. Um, if there's moral standards that that person has that you feel differently about, and maybe you feel strongly differently about, there's going to be a challenge. How do I interact with this? Um, how, do I, how do I live in that place? But if you were there, if you were in those challenging places, those places of discomfort, I believe, and that means that you really are following Jesus. That's because that's where Jesus went. He went into these difficult places. This is the way that we follow Jesus. is a path of discipleship. It's the way that we reach out to those who are sinners, who are different than us. And we know, I think we all know, the church has a, a mixed scorecard on how it's done in these areas. You know, at times the church has been very inclusive. At times we've been very segregated and, you know, rich or poor or black and white. We've had, a, we've had a mixed reports. We've also been those who've had a mixed report on embracing sin and calling out sin and being involved in moral things we shouldn't be and being a light of, of goodness. There's a mixed report card. It's not easy to follow Jesus. There's discomfort involved. But that's the way Jesus takes us, and he models it in his life. So the question for us is, what will we do? Will we follow Jesus in these uncomfortable areas, breaking social barriers at times? Maybe loving an activist that you wouldn't want to be around, or befriending a, a homosexual that you feel uncomfortable around? Or, or, or will we play it safe and just stay out and avoid getting into others' business? This is the... This is the question. This is, and this is the way that Jesus went. He went into uncomfortable places for the good of others. And how will we do? Will we, will we do the same? Jesus is amazing in how he did these things. Can we follow in his path? So, at this point, you have this Samaritan woman. And she is, her attention, you know, she realizes this guy, he's much more than she had thought. He's not crazy. She knows things, he knows things about her life and and he's invaded her personal life. He's invaded her social bubble. And so he does that because he wants to create an unlikely worshiper. So let's look at verses 20 through 26. Unlikely worshiper. She raises a, a kind of a common question that the Jews and the Samaritans had is, well, if he's really who he says he is, Jesus, then does it really matter because we can't worship the same God anywhere because we worship on different hills? Well, let's look at verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So again, reflect upon this amazing story. This is a Jewish man, this Jewish rabbi, breaking all social norms to talk to this in many ways, we see immoral Samaritan woman, questionable past. This would be absurd to the people of the day that this was taking place, but this is the way that Jesus is. He's 
converting an unlikely worshiper. But there's a problem here. How can she worship the God of the Jews? They, they, they live in two different places. They, work on, they worship on two different mountains. In that time, you know, your, your location had a lot to do. It's a little different for us. We don't think that way. A lot to do with your God and the way you worship. And so the, the Jews, they worshipped in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And, and the Samaritans, well, they worshipped up north at Mount Gerizim. So even if Jesus is a prophet, which she seems to be convinced of now, what difference does that make? He's a Jewish prophet, and she's a Samaritan. Well, Jesus' explanation here comes in three parts, and he's going to say there's there's something new taking place on here. There's something new taking place. First in verse 21, he tells her that in the future, it won't matter which mountain um, that they worship on. That, That will be irrelevant. The, the, the place of worship will not, not be a problem. This is a, this is a new day is coming. And then, and then in verse 22, he says that the Samaritans, they are worshiping without knowledge. So there was something the Jews had that the Samaritans didn't. They had some truth because they had received God's word and there was revelation there. So he's saying the Jews have a better revelation of what's coming, um, but there is hope for you. The salvation comes from the Jews, but verse this, this third part of his answer tells us there's hope for the Samaritan woman. And we find that in verses 23 and 24. He says there's a significant change being revealed in God's relation to man. God the Father is seeking worshipers in a particular manner, a particular way in which they worship. And that way is in spirit and in truth. These will be worshipers not defined by ethnicity or gender or place of worship, but the manner in which they worship, and that is spirit and truth. So what he means by this is on this day, there's a turning point coming. The Messiah has come. Jesus has come. And the worship the Father desires is this, is worship in truth. Truth based on the idea that those who confess the Messiah as who he is, the truth of the Messiah, that is Jesus, only these men and women who acknowledge you as the Son of God, are worshiping in truth. This is the, the, the way in which all people, by acknowledging who Messiah is, not place, but a person, and worshiping in spirit. If you remember again in the story of Nicodemus, there was how can a man be, can, can receive eternal life? Well, he must be born again. There's a spiritual revolution that takes place in a person. They're born anew by the Spirit of God and transferred into a spiritual relationship with the living God. There's a new relationship that takes place. And this is both truth based on who the Messiah is and this spiritual rebirth that takes place, the transformation of the inner life to have a relationship with the living God again. This is the new form, not a place, but with a person, a person, Jesus, who brings the spirit and who is the truth. This is a turning point in redemptive history. And so in verse 25 it seems like the woman is getting this because she then questions, I know the Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So she's thinking, well, if the truth is important, then the Messiah is coming. When is he coming? Who is this man? And that's when Jesus, in a very straightforward way, the most straightforward way I can recall up to this point, he says, I who speak to you am he. He's just saying it straight out. I am the Messiah. I am the one who 
Jews have been waiting for. I am the one who Samaritans have been waiting for, but in a a way that they didn't understand exactly what they were waiting for. I am he. Jesus is that one. He brings the truth and the spirit. Now, there's a a sort of devious error of our time. And it's devious because it's, it's true, but not true. The idea that God accepts everyone how they are. That's an error, but it's also a truth. God does accept everyone without partiality, but in whatever state they come in, but God does not intend for people to, to remain in the state in which they came. He seeks worshipers in spirit and in truth. He, he, tr- he changes what they know, their lack of knowledge of the past, their blindness to reveal truth. He wants that to be changed. And, he, and the sin that is in their life, he wants that to be changed as well. He wants to change them from the inside out, a spiritual rebirth. So the, 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 the devious error is God does go to all, but he doesn't leave them in a state. He seeks to change and transform. This Samaritan woman had both a faulty understanding before and a morally suspect life. The same really could be said for Nicodemus. He also, though he had the great revelation of God in the Word, he also was confused. He, he too needed to be changed. The Father seeks worshipers of all types, but he seeks worshipers that will worship in a particular way, that is spirit and truth. It is biblical, um, it, it, biblical inclusion in God's plan. It's transformative. It means going from where they were to something new. It's a, it's not a general acceptance of the status quo. It is inclusion in truth and spirit. So right doctrine, right belief in who Jesus is, and a right restored relationship, a change of behaviors and actions and thoughts in a way the spirit does that. God accepts and includes all, but he doesn't typically change. Inclusion only comes from being united to the Messiah. Jesus in spirit and in truth. There is no one in all the world like our Jesus. His love is so great that he comes into people's lives, into a society. He brings discomfort to challenge the status quo, to change the sinner so that the sinner may worship the Father in the way that he seeks. Now, before we want to move on this topic, I want to think about worship just from a little bit different perspective. The church, um, us, you and I, who've um, decided to follow Jesus and he's saved us, we should be the place where you see the worship in spirit and truth. We're the people who have been united to Jesus in right relationship with him. We have this word that teaches us right doctrine. But at times, you know, the church has lost its way. And, and so you, you actually can kind of think of uh, worship in a sense of spirit and truth. People at times emphasize spirit. People at, at times emphasize truth. We want to be a church and a people who are always asking ourselves, are we worshiping in spirit and truth? Are, are we so locked into right doctrine and right, this is right, and fall in the line of the letter of the law, and we forget and, and we minimize a alive spiritual life, life, a relationship with the living God who's our father, who's our brother, who's our friend. 
Or the other way, where people have gone where they so much into the spirit and they want relationship and life and, you know, feeling. And they forget the truth, the, 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 the Bible that grounds us. We want to look at ourselves. Where do we fall in this? Where are we? We want to be right in the place where we're spirit and truth. When we, um, we, Ben and Pastor Stephen and others, they spent a lot of time picking out our songs of worship. You know, um, music has been a common way in which people have worshiped God throughout the history of, of the world. And so when we pick our songs of worship, we want them to be biblically truthful. They want them, want them to, to teach us the things of the gospel, but we also want them to be relational. Where you can, you can express your, your emotions and your feelings. And, 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 the, and, and that relationship that you have with God, spirit and truth. This is the way we want to live as a church. And we should, I think, oftentimes consider ourselves and ask us, are we worshiping in spirit and truth? This is going to help. Because that's what the Father seeks, those who worship in spirit and truth. All right. An unlikely worshiper. She now becomes a witness. Let's read verses 27 through 43. It's sort of the longest section of our text that we're going to read. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with the woman, but no one said, Who do you seek? Or, what, uh, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then come the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is indeed the Savior of the world. After the two days, he departed from Galilee, or for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. We'll stop there for today. In uh, verse 22, it said that the salvation, that salvation was from the Jews. But as this historic conversation we've seen is demonstrated, that salvation being from the Jews doesn't mean that salvation is only for the Jews. Salvation coming from the Jews does not mean that salvation is only for the Jews. In verse 42, the Samaritans, this is a key verse, the Samaritans reach a conclusion. And this phrase is only found twice in the Bible. And John, the author here, was the only one who ever said it. It says, he is the, Jesus is, the Messiah is the Savior of the world. 
of all the earth, of all peoples. He is the Jewish Messiah, but he is the Savior of the world. Every tribe and tongue and language and nation, he's the Savior of the world. This is the conclusion that's coming to the end of this story. And the proclamation of that truth is the honor and the joy of those who have been unlikely, become unlikely worshipers. You and I are unlikely worshipers. That, that Jesus would come, that the Father would seek us. And this Samaritan woman, she leaves this well that she'd probably visited often. That was probably where she went and did her work. And she left that well in a way that had never been before. Her thirst was quenched, even though you know, she would have to drink some water again. She had this peace, this new life, this, this, these springs of water that the Bible talks about from the past that was welled up inside of her. Her thirst was quenched eternally. And so she went and she told her people. Now, you can imagine, this woman was, probably wasn't the most you know, um, honored person in her, in her, in her, in her town. They, they, people probably talked about her behind her back. You know, um, and she comes into a town now talking about a new guy. And they're probably thinking, we've heard this before. You know, she's had five husbands. She's with one that she's not her husband. But this lady... I don't think she cares anymore. She's met a man now who is different from all others that she's ever met. He, he's changed her life. He's touched her heart. He, he was personal. He, he went and he cared and he, he talked about things that changed her. And so she goes back to her town and she begins to tell the people about this man who, who told me everything I've ever done. She'd been touched in her heart. She, she'd been compassionately challenged and changed. And so... She goes and declares this good news. And, and as you see in verse 39, uh, many believed in the words, in Jesus because of her words. And then, and then in verse 41, it says that even more believed after this because they heard Jesus' words himself. And so, this is the way that the word of God, this is the natural way that the gospel of Jesus is spread. It's the same way it happens today, is that unlikely worshipers, those who have been changed and touched by Jesus, who's reached into their lives and it's been uncomfortable and he's changed them, they, they, they know this Jesus now and they just, they want to go share it. They, they can't help but they, they want to tell others about the good news about this man who came into their lives. And, and when that takes place, then God's word is read and people hear it again and even more belief from the testimony of the believer and then the testimony of God's word, Jesus' word even more believe. This conversation that was recorded here, John, it's a historic moment in the plan of God's salvation because it's this turning point, going from Jews to now uniting Samaritans, and we know that only broadens to more and more lands as the Bible unfolds. Have you been united to Jesus? Have you been united to Jesus? Have you met this one who is just altogether different? Has he accepted you and changed you? He does that to our lives. He accepts you and he changes you. He accepts you like no one else has ever accepted you. But also he cares deeply about your personal life and the things in your life. And he wants to change you and mold you, in, mold you into a, a man or a woman who worships in spirit and in truth. And so, this is the way that the work of Jesus continues. And we can see here, um, there's a section of, we won't get into it a lot because there's too much here, but in verses 31 through uh, 38, there's this 
sort of metaphoric way in which Jesus is saying, the harvest has come. Many people in the past, prophets and priests and kings and common people of Israel have led up to this time. But now Jesus is on the scene. There's a harvest to be take place. Harvest of not wheat and grains, but a harvest of people who can follow Jesus and walk after him and, and he, he to reap life in them. And so this is this metaphor that takes place. And this is the, the, the goal, the, not the goal. This is the purpose that God has given all his people, his believers, the followers of Jesus at this time from then on. And you're included in that of testifying, of bearing witness of this Jesus. You're called to go outside of where? Outside your comfort zone. Everywhere. <laughs> We're told to go to our families. We're told to go to our co-workers. We're called to go all over the place. This is the, the natural way in which the gospel goes forward. is through his people. Through you and I. And it's going to be uncomfortable at times. It, it, it probably won't feel um, wonderful. But there's some wonder in it. And there may be times where you are to go to someone who, man, their values are so much different than yours. And you, too, if you met in any other way, it would just be um, clashing heads. But God would have you go to that person and help them to see Jesus. This could be a neighbor. It could be someone of your classmates. It, it, it might be uncomfortable, but that's the way that Jesus walked, and that's the way he calls us to walk. Let's rejoice that the Father seeks worshipers. Worshipers of all types. Just think of all the different types of people. God seeks them all. And many who are not like us, and he seeks them so he might transform them and change them so they might know Jesus' Messiah and walk with him. There really are many, many religions in this world. We can just sort of conclude and think about this. But there is only one, there's many religions, but there's only one Savior of the world. Only one Savior of the world. Jesus is unique. There is none like him. That is why he is the only way whereby people may be saved. We can rejoice that the Savior of the world, he is without partiality. He goes to all. And remarkably, he has come to some of us. So the question for us, I guess we'll just end on is this, is that will you and will I follow him and do likewise in reaching out to those who are different than us. Let's pray. Lord, we are amazed that we have such a wonderful Savior, one who includes way beyond our world includes, and and one who changes in a way that um, others just cannot do. One who cares deeply about us and our, uh, uh, deeply in our, our personhood and our beliefs and our thoughts and our actions. One who cares about our society and wants to change. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be transformed more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And then you would enable us, you would empower us to go and just to proclaim that how, how wonderful this Jesus is. And Lord, as we face discomfort, uh, may we reflect upon the truth that you faced more discomfort and that you did so to save many. And may we follow in your footsteps. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.